If you're keeping track of accents and continents among our interns, we now have had interns from South America, Asia, Africa, and now India, but this is by far the most delightful accent that we've had for an intern. If you haven't met J. Paul, our newest intern, you'll want to do so tonight. I'm convinced that our sermon tonight is intended for you. This text is profoundly relevant for you, and you will have opportunity to put it into practice this week. Let me ask you, how do you pray in times of trouble? Perhaps I should back up and ask, do you pray? Or do you worry and fret? Our text is profoundly instructive for new Christians and mature alike. And so I'd ask you to take your Bible in hand and turn to Joshua chapter 7. You'll need to be deep into the text with me. The context is Israel has miraculously entered the land of Canaan, has conquered the first opponent city they found, the city of Jericho, in a rousing supernatural victory. And in the next part of the conquest, a, a tiny part of Israel's army, 3,000 out of 1 million soldiers, goes to the next little village of Ai and is routed. 36 Israelite soldiers are killed in the process. The leaders of Israel, having been promised victory over the Canaanites, are totally confused. They are depressed, and they don't know how to proceed. So we need to deeply ask for the help of the Holy Spirit at this point to teach us and instruct us because this text will teach us how to pray in times of both trouble and confusion. Let's seek God's help now. O sovereign Lord, the psalmist cried out, teach me thy way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Lord, that is our prayer too tonight. Be active in our midst, instructing us by the Holy Spirit. Then give us grace to walk in the truth that we've received through Jesus we pray, amen. Every circumstance is a call to seek the face of God, but especially the dark providences. But instead, we often try carnal methods and schemes until almost frustrated to death. Perhaps we then finally, under duress, cry out to God. Joshua was not such a man. What makes him such a glorious model why he's held up in the scriptures as a godly giant of faith is he is not such a man. He doesn't have to beat his head against the wall over and over. Upon hearing of the defeat of the armies of Israel at Ai, he immediately turns to prayer. He turns away, in fact, from all human counsel. And what I want to do tonight is point out several lessons from Joshua's prayer. I hope you're looking at your copy of Joshua 7 and look with me at verses 6 through 9, a very brief text, lessons that we can learn and apply even quickly tonight. Look with me, for example, at Joshua 7, verse 6, and notice the object of the prayer of Joshua, and notice the elders of Israel. In verse 6, we're told that Joshua, upon hearing the defeat of the nation of Israel's armies, he tears his clothes and falls to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord. Now think about what Joshua could have done upon receiving this bad news. He could have immediately turned to the spies and berated them for bad counsel, bad intelligence. If Joshua would have railed on the spies, that would have given a lot of people satisfactory because people want to scapegoat. They want a Monday morning quarterback. That would have made some people happy. 
He could have turned to the soldiers, the 3,000 soldiers who'd showed a measure of cowardice and turned their backs and retreated in a full sprint. He could have turned on them and lambasted them. He could have even turned in on himself, berated himself or consoled himself. Could have been philosophical. Well, you win some, you lose some. But Joshua demonstrates what a man of God does. He's theocentric. He turns to God first. And look at his posture and his attitude. He's horizontal before the mercy seat. He knows that Israel needs mercy. And so he is spread-eagled on his face in front of the ark of God, the symbol of God's presence in their midst. At the pinnacle of that ark, of course, is the mercy seat. And that's what Joshua is pleading for. Now, isn't there an application, even as we just barely begin to look at this text, isn't there an application here for us at Woodruff Road, especially the leaders, the elders and deacons of Woodruff Road? Look at verse 6 carefully. This was a collective leadership prayer meeting. He and the elders of Israel. Now, let me just stop and give you a calendar note. Beginning in about five weeks, we will begin the very careful process of nominating men for the office of elder and deacon. And those men then who are nominated will go through about six months of training. They'll go through very careful examination before they're set before you for your election or not. And what we are looking for is godly men, proven men, mature men, men who meet the criteria, the qualifications that the New Testament sets forth. But one of the things that we should learn about what kind of men God calls to be leaders is found right here in verse 6. Look at it carefully. This is a powerful lesson for men who are called to be leaders. That whenever we face crisis issues, that we are quick to come together to call on the name of the Lord, not to come together to scheme or to blame or to point fingers, but always first to pray. Today, as you pray for your elders and pastors and deacons, and I hope you do, and as you pray for the future leaders of Woodruff Road, men who God is raising up, I hope you'll pray this way. Lord, give us leaders that in every situation are quick to be driven to their knees calling on your name. What we see Joshua doing is he runs straight to the face of God in this situation. No finger pointing, no blaming, no second guessing, straight to the throne of grace. This is a man of God. This is a model for all who would be godly leaders. And so if even right now, and you're a man and you're considering pursuing the office of elder or deacon, let me ask you based on this text, is that your first response in times of trouble? Straight to prayer. Is that your response? But notice what else we see about Joshua's prayer. Notice the attitude with which he prays. It's one thing to come to the right object of prayer, and he comes to Jehovah. It's a whole other thing to come with the right attitude. And so I want you to analyze with me the attitude that Joshua prays with. First of all, it's an attitude of genuine grief. We've seen so many movies, so many portrayals by actors of grief <clears throat> that we've forgotten how to truly grieve from the heart over real tragedy. We've forgotten how to show the right emotions at the right time and what that proper emotion is. Now let me remind you, I said it last week, and I was even asked by a couple of people about this. Carl, did you mean that when you said this is the best generation Israel ever had? Absolutely yes. 
These are men of faith. <clears throat> These aren't men who are a basket case and fall apart at the first sign of difficulty. These are godly giants who are gathered here with Joshua, men whose emotions and hearts are right. And what is the first attitude we see? We see an attitude of genuine grief. Now let me ask you, even before I demonstrate from the text, when was the last time you grieved, lamented, biblically? Not worried, not complained, but grieved over the setbacks of the people of God. When was the last time you did anything approaching this? Look at verse 6 carefully. Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their head. Why does he tear his clothes? Because this is a symbol of a broken heart, a broken spirit, a torn spirit. When a man does this, it shows, when he tears his clothes, he shows to the outside world that his heart is being ripped apart. Perhaps you're wanting instruction tonight. Carl, what should I do when I'm grieving? Should I yell? Should I curse? Should I put my fist through the wall? Let me counsel you biblically. There is a right biblical demonstration of grief. Some of you say, Carl, I I can't do what Joshua just did there. There goes 50 bucks if I tear my nice shirt. My friend, it's biblical. Listen to Genesis 37. Joseph's lying brothers <clears throat> returned to their father Jacob and they took Joseph's tunic. They killed a, a goat, dipped the tunic in blood. They sent the tunic of many colors and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Do you know whether it's your son's tunic or not? Of course they're lying. The father Jacob recognized Joseph's coat of many colors, and he said, It's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And then we read in Genesis 37, Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and grieved for his son many days. Whenever there's a setback, a loss, especially among the people of God, the Bible teaches us what to do. The physical activity all through biblical history is to rip their clothes because it's a proper symbolic activity of a broken heart. They also do something many would say, well, that's just a little demeaning. Look at verse 6 again. We're told that they pour dust on their heads. This is a physical demonstration of a right heart. It's self-humiliation. In Lamentations 2, we're shown the history of this practice in Scripture. Because of the Lord's withdrawal of his grace and blessing from the people of God, the leaders of Israel do this again. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground, keep silence, throw dust on their heads, and gird themselves with sackcloth. <clears throat> so what you see with Joshua 7 is a consistent picture in verse 6. It's how godly men act when the people of God have had a setback. They grieve not by going off and standing outside like John Wayne by themselves, being aloof, being the strong silent type. They give proper biblical vent to their grief. They tear their clothes. They pour dust on their head. What was it that caused Joshua and the other leaders, the elders, grief? Israel had been defeated. 
And Joshua knew this could only be for one reason, God's displeasure with them. And when God frowns, we must mourn and grieve. Let me say that again. I don't know that you heard me. When God frowns, we must mourn and grieve. And so the first attitude, we're talking about the attitude with which Joshua and the elders prayed. The first attitude Joshua prayed with was one of grief. Look at the second attitude in verse 6. The second attitude with which Joshua and these elders prayed was one of genuine humility. We read Joshua tore his clothes. He fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. Now, just in case you're confused, there's no carpet or tile here. He fell in the dirt, his face in the soil. Mighty Joshua the leader of Israel, who when he walked through the camp, young men would sort of stand up straight and they would say, if only one day I could have that kind of regal bearing. Mighty, dignified Joshua, this 80-year-old man, hero to boys, leader of a nation of millions, face down in the dirt. That's humility. This isn't posturing. This is a man who recognizes that he doesn't control the fate of Israel that he must prostrate himself before a holy God who's sovereign. Joshua is saying by this posture, Lord, whatever you're doing, no matter why you're displeased, and remember, <clears throat> Joshua at this moment doesn't yet know why God is displeased. But Joshua is saying, you're God and I'm the creature. I must always remember who I am and be abased in the presence of a holy God. I must never trip unthinkingly into his courts. And so what we see here is a second attitude is not only proper grief, but proper humility. And then there's a third attitude that he brings to this, and that is genuine persistence in prayer. Look again at verse 6. Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. This is not a momentary thing. He was there until God says, get up, in verse 10. In fact, Joshua would still be there on his face until he was told otherwise. He was going to persist. He was going to cling to the Lord until the Lord answered. He was going to keep crying out to God. God, reveal why this has happened and then deliver us. He would stay until God answered. It's an easy thing to begin to pray. One of the things that there are people in this congregation who have told me the most difficult problem they have in prayer is, is persistence, even just staying awake. It's very difficult to persist, to wait on the Lord. There's an old word that you and I need to learn. It's a good word. It's the word importunity. And it means persistence in prayer. And what we see Joshua and these elders engaging in is importunity. They prayed until evening. Joshua is going to wrestle with the Lord like Jacob until the Lord gives him an answer. He is, he is giving a picture already of what Jesus teaches later in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Keep on asking. Keep on knocking. Keep on seeking. And so the attitudes that Joshua and the elders bring to the Lord in this prayer are grief, humility, and persistence. There's another application here to the leadership of Woodford. When the people of God in this place are downtrodden and defeated and troubled, what should we do? No schemes, no gimmicks, no methods. 
we should do this one thing. Come together to be bowed down low and call on the name of the Lord. That's always what true godly leaders do in times of trouble. They don't say, get more plates in the air and spin them faster. They fall on their face and say, Lord, help your people. Lord, be the strong tower for your people. And I want us to look carefully at Joshua's prayer. We've just introduced the attitude with which he comes. I want us to look at this prayer, and I hope that you'll not think I'm being critical. This has been revealed for our instruction. Most of us wouldn't be very comfortable with someone analyzing our prayer, but I want us to be analytical. This has been revealed for our learning. I want you to see some things that are commendable in Joshua's prayer and some things that are condemnable, some things that seem to be a mixture. But the scriptures are very honest. The same Bible that reveals David as the man after God's own heart also reveals his sin with Bathsheba. The same Bible that tells us of Peter's bravery and defending Christ tells us of his cowardice in denying Christ before teenage girls. And the Bible is so honest about the prayers of God's people. It tells us the real content when they're true and also when they're marked by weakness and sin and even error. And so first of all, I want you to notice the objectionable elements of Joshua's prayer. Look at verse 7. Look at how Joshua begins. Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we'd been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Does this sound familiar to you? It should. Because this is the same exact prayer that the faithless, unbelieving generation before had said. In fact, if you look at Exodus 14, this is what their faithless fathers who died in the wilderness said when they thought they were about to be overrun by the Egyptians at the Red Sea. Joshua's prayer, as he begins, look at verse 7, <clears throat> almost sounds like he's faithless. And what did those fathers do, the, the unbelieving fathers? What did they do instead of saying, what a great day for the Lord to show himself strong on the part of the people of God? They said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us so to bring us up out of Egypt? And so as Joshua begins, he almost sounds like their faithless parents. And you see the exact same thing, by the way, among that generation in Exodus 16, Exodus 17. It's the grumbling that brings God's judgment down upon them. But look back at our text in Joshua 7. I want to show you God's grace, his patience, his long-suffering. He expresses no displeasure with this prayer when it's on Joshua's lips. When the children of Israel said this, he punished them with fiery serpents. Why not Joshua? Because God knows Joshua's heart. He knows the direction of Joshua's life. His trajectory has been one of faith, and this is an aberration. But then look at the commendable elements of his prayer. And these are so much greater. Look at verse 8. Joshua moves from assertions and posture of unbelief to asking questions in a posture of faith. He says, Oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? Do you ever ask questions of bewilderment in your prayer? That's what verse 8 is. Look at it. Lord, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to think when your covenant people, the apple of your eye, are put to flight by wicked pagan Canaanites and just a few of them at that? 
He asks a question of bewilderment. Do you ever do that in your prayer? The Psalms are full of these. Of course, we should go to the Psalms to learn to pray. For example, in Psalm 74, I want to assist you tonight and show you legitimate forms of prayer. The psalmist writes at the beginning of Psalm 74, O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? That's a question of bewilderment. And what you notice, these almost always lead to in the Psalms, and by the end of Joshua's prayer, a resolution of faith. Did you hear that? Whether it's Joshua or the psalmist, when these questions of bewilderment are raised, they almost always, if not always, lead to a resolution of faith. But it's not wrong to get in your closet and say, down on your face, Lord, why is this happening? Why are these circumstances working together this way? What is it you're trying to teach me? And how are you going to instruct me? You have my attention, Lord. But notice where Joshua's prayer quickly goes to. And this is the prayer that gets the attention of God. Look at Joshua 7, 9. And if there is a, if there is a jewel in the crown of this text tonight, it is Joshua 7, verse 9. The commendable element is not just the question of humble bewilderment, showing that he's not omniscient and sovereign. The question then moves to a very commendable element in verse 9. This is the plea, and look at this carefully, because this ought to be driving our prayer. This ought to be what we are, are driving towards every time we pray. This is the plea for the vindication of God's glory. Where Joshua says, the Canaanites, all the inhabitants of the land, will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? Joshua, of course, learned to pray this way from Moses. You could study Exodus 32. Moses prays the exact same way. When Jesus taught his disciples the framework of all true prayer, the Lord's Prayer, he taught them to begin with this passion, the glory of God's name. That's why we begin the Lord's Prayer, our form of prayer with this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The first issue, the first priority in our praying is always the glory of God. And that's what Joshua was concerned about when he came to verse 9. Lord, what are you going to do for your great name? What will you do for your glory? The moment Joshua pled for the vindication of God's name, what happened? Look at the next verse. God says, I'm going to act. Believer, do you understand this? Nothing lies closer to the heart of God than his passion for his own glory. We ask in the catechism that our children learn on Wednesday night. Have I said to you in the last six hours that the best thing we do is catechids? Oh, maybe it's been seven hours now. But our children are learning orthodox theology. We are, we are strategically planning for our children to be better theologians than their parents are. And the very first question they learn in the Shorter Catechism on Wednesday night is, what is man's chief end? And the answer comes back to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, then, if man's chief end is to glorify God, what is God's chief end? Listen carefully. God's chief end is to glorify himself forever. He has committed himself to make his name glorious in all the earth. The whole end of the redemptive work of Christ is found here, that God would be glorified. Joshua sees this and grabs a hold of this, and he says, Lord, okay, we just lost a battle. But what are you going to do to glorify yourself? 
This is the highest pinnacle we can reach for in prayer. Think of any situation you're undergoing right now. A rebellious child. A setback in your job. A health concern. Lord, how are you going to glorify yourself in this? The Lord Jesus Christ, the night before he goes to the cross, just hours before his arrest, what's his chief concern? If you listen to John 17, when he prays that great high priestly prayer and see what is on his heart and mind, he prays, we are told, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son also may glorify you. What was Christ's concern? His pain? His humiliation? His embarrassment? No. Let the Father and the Son be glorified and be lifted up before the eyes of men. And he keeps praying this way all through the high priestly prayer. In John 17, 4, Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth. And in John 17, 5, he prays, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. Do you see what Christ's great burden and urgency is in prayer? It's that God be glorified. So I ask you, when was the last time ever that you prayed and said, Lord, in this situation, what will you do for your great name? How will you glorify yourself? Christian maturity is learning to rise above prayer that has as its sole focal point our concerns, our desires, our wishes. We must grow up and focus on the glory and glorification and magnification of our great God. Focusing especially on the one whose name is above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Joshua's burden in chapter 7. Look at verse 9. O Lord, what will you do for your great name? That's how to pray for provision tonight. O Christ, glorify yourself in this flock. Lord, what are you going to do for your great name at Woodford Presbyterian Church? Is it to humble us? Great, if it will glorify you. Are you going to grow us? Great, if it will exalt you. Are you going to shrink us? Better, if it exalts you. But our great burden in prayer must always be, Lord, glorify your name. Bring honor and majesty before the nations to yourself. Let me make four applications to us tonight. The first, some of you are saying, oh, analyzing a prayer, how irrelevant could a sermon be? What does this have to do with me and my life? Well, my friends, you struggle to enter into this type of prayer. You struggle to enter in with humility and grief, praying for the glory of God. Perhaps it's because you're estranged from the God of the Bible. If this sort of instruction, if this sort of analysis seems irrelevant, perhaps you have no desire for the glory of God, but only your own. I would plead with you tonight, may God show you not only your need for a Savior, but your self-centeredness. Let me plead with you to look outside yourself. Instead of just saying, Lord, give me something that will please me and something that will interest me. Let me plead with you to look outside yourself to the glory of God. To see him lifting up his son, the Savior, Jesus. A second application. Do you see here in this text the dim, faint reflection of the greater Joshua? Remember, this man we see in Joshua 7 is but the lesser Joshua. 
because the greater Joshua would come 1,400 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we see this as a foreshadowing of the greater Joshua to come? You remember the greater Joshua also fell down on his face in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Except there's something gloriously different about the prayer of the greater Joshua. When he falls on his face to cry out to his father, there's no doubt, there's no complaining, only willing, humble submission and a resolve to glorify the father. A third application. How gracious God is to receive Joshua's mixed, weak, conflicted prayer. And you and I must take heart from this. The Lord will be gracious to you even when you pray in a weak or foolish pattern. Perhaps you're saying, well, I don't know if I can pray just yet because I don't know if I can pray absolutely correctly and technically if I can get all the these and thous and the intercessions and petitions and I can't pray like J. Paul. I can't get everything in the right order. This prayer, if you were to pray it and look at it from an analytical standpoint, you'd say, well, Joshua's messing up. He starts out in unbelief. He starts out questioning God. But my friend, hear me carefully. God is gracious. He hears the weak and faltering prayers of his children. And he will do the same with you. A fourth application. And this is for our hope. Joshua is a stalwart of faith. One of two men, Caleb being the other, of a whole generation of two million people that get to enter into the promised land because of their faith. This man, Joshua, is a giant of faith. In eternity, when you're in heaven and you look way up to the front, there will be Joshua. Don't brush him off tonight and say, this is just merely sort of an Old Testament saint. He didn't walk in the light. He didn't have the Holy Spirit. He didn't know what we know. My friend, this is a giant of piety. This is a godly saint, one whose shoes you and I are not worthy to carry. If this is one of the two men in a whole nation who get to enter into the promised land because of his faith, and he falters in unbelief, even but momentarily, brothers and sisters, beware. Your faith in God, your faith in his purposes, will falter and wane at times. We must learn how to cry out to Christ. Lord, help my unbelief. Help my weakness. The fact that we have this checkered experience, this prayer that has some good elements, some not so good, is not evidence that Joshua is a fraud or a hypocrite. It simply shows the true experience of all saints. If Moses and David and Elijah and Peter and Joshua can't be kept from these vacillations, neither can you and I. Think of Elijah in 1 Kings 18. He faces down 850 false prophets by himself. And then in the next chapter, he runs from the threat of a woman. His faith vacillates. Just as we see Joshua, even inside of this prayer, his faith vacillates. If the giants of the faith can't be kept from momentary vacillations, neither can you. But listen to me carefully. Here's our hope. Our hope is not in our own consistency and stability. Our trust is not that we always pray correctly, that we never waver. Our faith is in the rock who cannot be moved. Our faith is never in our consistency or stability. Is your faith going to wane? Yes. Are you going to pray poorly at times? Yes. 
Is your rock ever going to move? No. This evening, look to the greater Joshua. The one who graciously receives our poor prayers and the one who restores us to act for the glory of his name's sake. Let's pray together. Oh God, we are weak and faltering in our faith. We are just like our father in the faith, Joshua. One incident can blow us off course. So we ask, first of all, that you would teach us, that you would drive us to come to your mercy seat with true humility and grief when we falter. From this prayer, teach us in our praying that for the elders and deacons and pastors, the leaders of Woodruff Road, that we'd be found together on our knees, on our faces even, crying out to you, Lord, what will you do for the glory of your name here? And Lord, we pray that our concerns would be less and less about the petty things, the trivial and the mundane concerns, and they would be more and more about the glory of the eternal God. Turn our hearts so that might be all our passion, all our desire, that Christ be lifted up in the sight of all the nations, that he receive glory and adoration. Oh, Lord, just as you cared for your church as we heard, just as you heard their prayers, just as you raised them up, Lord, raise us up. Care for us and keep us when we are weak and faltering. And, Lord, for your great name, preserve us and strengthen us.